Hi, welcome back to the TT Wine Explorer podcast. I'm Tanya Tomaszewska. Today's episode takes us back to the Okanagan Valley in the southern interior of British Columbia, Canada. We've been to the Okanagan a few times during earlier episodes, for example, speaking with winemaker Grant Stanley in episode five about making Pinot Noir on the edge of the world's wine growing map, and with Ian McDonald, founder of Liquidity Wines, in episode seven about building a brand and creating a world class wine destination. Today's flight takes us to another stunning pocket of the Okanagan Valley, Skaha Bench, a separate sub-appellation which sits between Penticton and Okanagan Falls, alongside the more than 100-kilometer-long Okanagan Lake. My guest today is John Skinner, proprietor of Painted Rock Estate Winery. I clearly remember the first time I visited Painted Rock. It's hard to forget. It was close to eight years ago now. I'd recently moved back to Canada from having lived in Australia for many years, and where I had done a lot of exceptional wine travel and tasting. If you've been to Australia, you know how well they do wine tourism there. So this was my first time back to the Okanagan as a wine tasting adult, and Painted Rock was one of the standout stops during that visit. It has a spectacular position high on Skaha Bluffs, a sleek, airy, and modern tasting room, and jaw-dropping views across massive Okanagan Lake. Their wine resonated with me from the very first sip. In my mind, Painted Rock was kicking goals, and it made me excited about the potential of British Columbia as a wine travel destination and a place where premium wine can be made. Okay, so I was not the only one thinking of this because Painted Rock has become known in particular for its reds made from Bordeaux varieties and Syrah grown on their estate vineyards. Selections which have caught the attention of renowned international wine critics such as Jancis Robinson and the late Stephen Spurrier, both of whom visited Okanagan Valley. Such international attention has been attracted, in large part, as a result of Painted Rock and fellow BC wineries forming a strong local force to get our wine out onto the global wine map. Since that first visit to Painted Rock, I've been back countless times, on my own, with friends, taking visitors, leading private tours. When I observe people's reaction during their first visit there, I recognize it, because it was mine. An added bonus was that almost always, John was on site, pouring wine, engaging with everyone coming through, telling the Painted Rock story, and where his family wanted to take their wines. There was also often an opportunity to jump into an ATV with John to zoom around to get close to look at their vines. And so, during these past few weeks, when many in my circles have been discussing the acute challenges being faced by our local wine producers here right now, and trying to get our heads around where this industry can or should go from here, I thought of John as one of the Valley's pioneers to share his observations now as we look in the rearview mirror to consider where we've come from and to look ahead at the same time to see where we're going. Oh, and I saw John on the news just last week on wine-related matters too. I hope that you enjoy my discussion with John Skinner today. Let's fly. Hi, John. Thanks so much for joining us, my guest today. Tanya, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much. So, thank you. So, during today's episode, we'll discuss a few of the major current challenges being faced by our wine industry, many of which are very, very acute. But before we dive into that discussion, I'd love for you to provide a bit of context around the founding of Painted Rock, which opened in 2009. For those not familiar with your story, can you provide a bit of a snapshot as to how Painted Rock all started for you and the Skinner family? You know, what triggered the idea to start the winery and how did you decide on the location? I love it. Um, well, I'd been in the uh, investment business 
until I sold my equity in our firm and resigned or, or retired in the late night, like 97, 98. And then um, I bumped around for a little while. And around 2000, my wife said, you better find something to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I was too young to, you know, I had a lot of energy and I, but I didn't want to do what I had done. And, and I wanted to employ my capital in a, in a constructive way. So I have a very good friend, uh, Ray Cinarello, and I used to go down to his winery in Napa Valley, and I watched him build it in the 80s and 90s. And I thought, the Okanagan Valley, you know, by nature, I'm a market timing guy. And I thought, okay, the Okanagan Valley, they've done that vinifer program. Brewing Owl, there's some good, the, the results were good, and the wines were getting a lot better. And I thought, if I can be part of what makes this industry better, I'm going to do it. So I told my wife, this is like in 2001 or something. I said, okay, I'm going to go to the Okanagan and buy a winery this weekend. <laughs> so I was so ignorant. So I got up there and I very quickly recognized how little I knew. You just don't talk to a realtor and say you want to buy a winery. You got to do some. So I ended up just meeting a bunch of the community and I, uh, I we looked at about, I, I had a, friend of mine also that was doing some business down in Napa, I had a, three real good advisors as we looked. And we ended up looking at 30, I think it was like 33 or 34 different projects over the years. And we didn't find our property until the end of 20, what was it? 2003, we closed on the purchase uh, in January, 2004. So then I employed Valerie Tate and Valerie Tate, brilliant. And she oversaw everything in terms of our planting strategy. And uh, she determined which clones of which varieties. And they were so specific that when we actually placed an when, when I went, I went to the purveyor of, of, of the, all these things, the guy that sources all this stuff. And I said, can you get me? And I gave him a big list. And it's seven different varieties and, and two clones of each variety for complexity and all these things. And I said, can you get me all these things? And he said, um, I'll be back to you in a week. And what is it for those who don't aren't familiar, haven't been to your land in broad terms, what is it about the space that you form the view with your advisors that this would be the right spot, Bordeaux varieties and Syrah could work there? You know what it is? It's heat units. And we spent, we, we did a lot of study and, and we um, we've got, and, and it's position and it's air movement. So we've got about a 6% grade down towards the lake. We've got, we face, uh, we face west, like southwest. And it was really interesting because at the very beginning, I had two consultants working for me. And one, when I, I walked into where we were preparing everything, and it was about planting strategy right then in terms of direction. And there was a gentleman and, uh, uh, and Valerie, and they were arguing. And I said, what's the argument about? And the gentleman said, we're going to plant north-south because the sun comes up and the east goes down to the west and affects the fruit equally. And Valerie said, no, you've got to plant east-west. Now, this is the reason you don't want to plant north-south because you've got a 6% grade down towards the lake. Um, when In the winter, when, this, when, when the cold air hits and there's a low row of mountains behind us, that air is going to come down. It's going to kill the first row more than the second row, more than the third, because it's not going to move the air down to the lake. Okay, you've got to think air movement. You can solve the issue of the uh, access to the sun by leaf removal on the north side of the of the of the row. 
So you've already fixed that. And the most important thing, John, is, and the reason you're going to plant east-west? And I said, why is that? I said, you're going to have to terrace this property that you've worked so hard to, to yeah. preserve because we did. We, we didn't, we, we were really, we peeled the topsoil back, we removed the stump, we repaired the alluvial silt layer, put the topsoil back, did that hundreds of times. And it was very expensive. And I just said, shook the guy's hand and said, good to know you. <laughs> <laughs> so for people, yeah. Valerie did it. So for I people who are not in the industry, people listening, um, or haven't been to the Okanagan or traveled, that just provides a glimpse of the time in, uh, intensive and capital intensive process of starting and building a winery from scratch in vineyards. And you mentioned it yourself, you didn't really, you hadn't had any experience. You know what you liked, you knew what you wanted to try and do, but you, you had no farming experience. And this is farming and it's a lot of other things. And so uh, that level, you know, that level of investment and resource into the farming and viticulture, you know, across our province, you've been one of many who have, um, you know, over the last number of years and decades now um, made those investments and it's time too. it's, this doesn't happen overnight. And I think that often until you get up to the land and hear about it and learn about the process, um, we don't know. We don't know that, and so I, you know, I'll get back to the challenges of growing in a minute when we talk about some of the issues at hand yeah. right now. But I think that set up the um, things for the next part of the discussion. I like to get to is taking the news of what we could do in the Okanagan, you know, onto the world stage and outside of BC. So, um, you know, you've been and Painted Rock and other wineries have been really part of that early adopters of leading initiatives to get our wines outside the province. So other people could learn and hear and taste what we can do. You know, you've pushed into the London wine trade, you know, your flagship red icon was in Decanter's Magazine's 2020, one of the wines of the year. Um, you've done some, I think, some forays into the US, maybe Asia. So, you know, here's my question. In global terms, you know, our our production level is comparatively minuscule. We have a huge region, but we have small, you know, number of small acreage under vine. And most of our wine is consumed in our own province. I mean, we can barely get it out of our province into other parts of Canada. We'll talk about that in a minute too. So in broad terms, I mean, I understand marketing, but you know what, um, you know, what do you think going forward, given our small production, and it will continue probably to be small for a while, what do you think the potential returns are for, for BC production? I'm all for getting it out onto the, onto the global stage, but for people maybe who aren't in the industry, you know, what going forward do you think, um, you know, what are we trying to, to, to do really? Well, you know, it's, it's, I, I love the question because um, it's a brand has to be earned, not assumed. And that's legwork. That is, and and when you go into these circumstances, like I'm pouring for in Bordeaux and and in Frankfurt and London, and I've got six agents in Europe. We've got good support in in uh, Japan and uh, China. Like I, I basically can sell it wherever I want. And but I've I've developed these relationships where it isn't really a big money-making venture. It's, it's a brand building initiative. I want, and, and for quite a number of years, I was president of the Okanagan wine initiative. And it's like nine export oriented wineries that think in, and our, our, our mandate was don't market your brand, market the Okanagan market, Canada, British Columbia, and then the Okanagan. That's who we are. So let's go and win business together 
and that's the philosophy. And um, so I, I convinced some of our partners to, to join the initiative because I, I offered to introduce my, you know, I've been going to Pro, Provine for quite a number of years, and I've got really good agents in Europe. So I said, if you join, I'll introduce you to my agents. And you, you can't, you, it's, it's their decision whether they take the wines on or not. But I always thought, I want to go into a list, into a restaurant in, you know, lovely city in Europe and see a page that says Okanagan. doesn't have to be Painted Rock. I don't care about that. I want to see, I want to see some, you know, see Cedar Creek and see some really um, checkmate Martin's Lane and, and uh, Poplar Grove. And let's see that. Like to me, that, that was always my goal. And uh, right at the very beginning, I, a very dear friend of mine, Jim Stewart, introduced me to a Chinese contact and we got our wines into China right away. And it was on the news a couple of years after we got it in that the, the wines were retailing all over China at like 950 US a bottle. Um, it was kind of crazy, but uh, it was a great piece of business for us as a small winery because at the time producing like five or 6,000 cases, I was selling them 2,500. So that was a big so chunk of money. You, I just in terms of my own anecdote to, um, I don't know if validate's the right word, but, but, uh, the logical conclusion or extension of that is uh, the last two years I've visited London to see friends there um, and I hadn't gone in a long time. And invariably I get asked by London-based or British friends of mine, oh, T, you're in the wine industry in BC. Where, you know, I'd like to try some BC wine. Where can we get it? And mm -hmm. lo and behold, now when I Google in London, I can go, I can, there are Canadian and British Columbian wine on shelves in stores and I can direct my friends you know, 10 or 15 years, I don't know, maybe that would have been the same. <laughs> so thank you, because now I can, um, you know, instead of just taking things in my suitcase, I can send them somewhere. <laughs> or to your, to your, you know, your to your agents and other wineries from the Okanagan, um, some of your colleagues who have done the same. And slowly but surely, and there are restaurants and bars that have Canadian wines and British Columbia wines on the list. And this is, this is fantastic. Oh yeah. Fantastic. We're really, really well, we, we've got a really supportive group at the Clove Club in Shoreditch. Yeah. Um, that's one of the nicest restaurants yeah. in, in London. Like it's yeah. really good. Yeah. And they know our Cabernet Franc really well. And yeah. I get notes from the yeah. servers. Every once in a while I get an email, when are you sending more? <laughs> it's yeah. just really, that's super exciting. Yeah, it is. And I know you've been involved in other initiatives to um, do outreach in the United States. So, so thank yes. you. Um, just bringing back things, things back to the local now, um, you know, you painted rock is one of our iconic wineries here and you've developed a huge fan base of local followers, very loyal, loyal and visiting wine travelers. You know, you've done this through really strong marketing. Um, you're direct to consumer. You have grown a big wine club. And my observations are that that served you really well during the COVID lockdown years and you continue yep, to totally. grow. Yep. Um, so that you, you've got a really strong online digital presence. You've also created um, an analog, wonderful in real life destination. And you've really powerfully developed, um, I, th I think, from my observations, a really strong customer journey. So when people come, they leave, they go home, they're ambassadors for you, they finish that bottle of painted rock, they want another one. Um, I've witnessed this and I've, and um, it's palpable. So 
Congratulations on that. Um, what I, you know, getting into now a bit of the political that's come up in the news, in particular in the last few weeks. And Can I interrupt you yeah. just for a quick second? Yeah. Uh, that whole the description that you gave of the the building the wine club mm-hmm. and and that change that becoming social media oriented and stuff. Um, it wasn't us until about nine years mm-hmm. ago. When my daughter Lauren came on. That's right. Of course. She came on and she changed because I was doing all this international stuff. I'm selling 2,500 cases to the Chinese. I am out there like crazy. And then this young lady starts and she's got a, she did her MBA in Bordeaux, luxury brand management, food and wine. And she knows her stuff. And all of a sudden she came in and she said, dad, we're changing the business plan here. And we're going to build a club and we're going to build direct to consumer. It's more efficient. You don't, you're not paying agents. You're not like, honestly, it just changed everything about our chemical makeup. And now it's, 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 it's created a a really wonderfully loyal family. Yeah. Because she's in communication with them all the time. And she's very, um, on social media because I follow and I read the content and, uh, she is very, um, active for sure. And I love the blend of keeping people up to date with what's going on at the winery, um, events, the wine stock, uh, what's fa- what's facing the valley, um, and you know where you've come to. I think you know some of your anniversary archival fo- archival photos. So oh, uh, those are fun. But yes, you know, and I'm and uh, thank you for taking a break uh, in this chat to talk about the timing of that. Yeah, um, because it's also going to tie into some of our trade talk that we're going to get into. Good. But also, I think also in terms of what wineries can do. Um, or uh, do to build their brand, but build a following in the world that we're in. Uh-huh. And it seemed to me that because you had started this process before uh, 2020, March of 2020, you were in comparatively good shape for having built an online presence and the and the you know, an advanced start of a club that could be relied upon when people really couldn't go out and do anything. That that exactly. was my observation. That was huge. That was huge. And that us. you had already built a very large club in comparative terms and that many wineries, unfortunately, really had to catch up during COVID from zero to 100 and that you had already done a lot of that work. So kudos to Lauren and kudos to you for, uh, you know, giving, you know, St- standing back and letting Lauren run with that. Ten years ago, don't worry about that. She knows what she's doing, and I just, yeah, I just, you know, we're we're. You never know when you're. My child, I didn't know yeah. uh, when when she was fifteen. She said, "This is when we started the journey," and she said, "I'm going to work for the winery." There and, you go. And and she said, "I'm going to go to university. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to." And and lo and behold, all these years later, she's. She does. And yeah. and I just love, it's been seamless. And you don't know how the relationship is going to be from a, an employer-employee. Yeah. Well, it isn't. It's just we're <laughs> kind of partners in this. And Maybe I love it's easier it. to keep it that way. <laughs> it completely is. I've got nothing to teach. I'm, I'm, the one thing I, I learned in this journey, another lesson that I learned that was probably the most important one, and I'd share with anybody in a second, is know what you don't know and hire well. Yes. There are a lot of smart people. So when we looked for that property, I had really smart people working with me. When we did that planning strategy, I had really smart people. And if there there was one, say we had a team of about five or six that were all advising, and if there was one that wasn't a fit, we'd know it. Yeah. And it, in in retrospect, like I, I built this, 
if, if I had five primary advisors, I built this with five brains and me as a nuisance. <laughs> well, it's interesting because this really resonates and it's a, a parallel with your colleague down, you know, who was down the road, uh, Ian McDonald, when we talked about liquidity and building sure. a brand, he was of the same view. And it's so important to assemble a very strong team um, in each person absolutely with excellence. And then you mm-hmm. let them do their thing in terms of their expertise. Hey, where am I right now? I'm yeah. in West Vancouver. I'm not hanging around the winery getting in Gabe's way. Um, yeah. they, we, we really try to empower our team and give them the respect. And they, they, you know, we have exceptional confidence in everybody that works for us and it improves your efficiencies. It improves when people are powered by passion, it's far more progressive. If they're, if I was on their case about doing things and you don't have that loyalty and, and pride, and that is, is the greatest thing you can do for your team is to instill that and foster it and bolster it. And I think also as a founder though, in my observations, you, and again, just mentioning Ian because you know him and he was down the road, but he also was on site a lot like you were on site. And I think that um, for many people, it's fantastic for people to have that connection as part of the getting to know the brand and connecting with the brand. And so when they leave, they feel that they've been part of the story, the people who've started in their vision. So, um, so I guess taking this to the customer journey question and the wine clubs, this is all kind of coalescing into my next question, which is something relating to what's come up in the news the last couple of weeks, um, and Alberta. So I expect, I don't know, I haven't looked at your wine club list, but I expect that probably you have a lot of followers and a loyal fan base who are based in Alberta, um, and uh, as many wineries in British Columbia do, um, and you, you know, there's been a contentious issue uh, in the last couple of weeks in particular. I mean, it's been on and off, but this um, involves BC wineries delivering when they deliver their wine directly to consumers in Alberta. The Alberta regulator um, recently basically is wants to stop that, um, you know, basically say, no, you cannot ship your wines directly to people in our province. So for people listening who have heard a little bit in the news about this, oh, stoush is not the right word. Um issue. Um, can you just give a bit of a snapshot? I mean, well, I'm going to speak with Mark Hicken about the broader history of the trade issues, but in terms of the last few weeks, like what has instigated this in the news? What What's happening right now? Interesting. You know, the, um, the AGLC used the wine industry in British Columbia as <clears throat> they, they kind of came at us, I think it was 2016. And that was at the time when it was, it was highly political and it was it wasn't the AGLC doing it. It was, it was the Alberta government, or however they wanted to do it. But they they came after us. It was the pipeline pipeline it politics. Was the pipeline thing, yeah. yeah. So there was this was highly political, and um, I so this was before Lauren was really that active with us. So we didn't have that big wine club. So none of these things kind of came into play. But uh, this time around, there's no specific political thing that I've been able to, and I talked with Al Hudak and a lot of really influential, knowledgeable people, and haven't been able to figure out politically what the, what the angle is here. But in 2019, the feds basically allow for the interprovincial transfer one. That's, that's allowed now. Um, the, we got a letter a couple of weeks ago, two, two and a half weeks ago, I guess, from the AGLC saying, that they've come to 
know that however they figured it out that uh, it was a very aggressive letter and with, with big block letters and things and they said that that we ship direct to consumers in in alberta and they want us to stop that um what they're going to do is we have an agent or had an agent in alberta and we would send wine you have to send the wine to their their, their holding facility the aglc's holding facility for their agent and then the agent would distribute it to um <clears throat> To restaurants and to wine source, liquor source. Um, they said, uh, if you don't stop this and and notify us that you're going to stop the direct to consumer, we're going to disallow you to to send send your wines. Um, we have a very good size wine club. It probably, I would say, maybe we sell 60, 50 or sixty percent of our wines to our wine club, and. Uh, probably five to ten percent of that club are in Alberta, and they are. I just love these guys. You know what? Half of them have places in the Okanagan, or they're or they're regular visitors or whatever. And my simple point here is, these are prohibition laws that they're trying to trying to uh, play on, and I would. My nature is solution oriented. Instead of being confrontational let's sit down at a table and find out what it is. I know what you want. You, you don't want to be losing the taxes. Let's figure out a flat tax. Do you know that 48 of the 50 states in the United States have this agreement where you can, you can ship wine anywhere in the United States. You just remit a flat tax. It's to like 275 a bottle or something. And dear Alberta, <laughs> I, I, I'm happy to do that. Why don't we just simplify it? And then, because, you know, the reality is they're suggesting that we adhere to uh, kind of a, a shipping, a business model of the 1990s, where we will ship it to the central such and such, and then they'll distribute it, and then all this kind of stuff. No, you know what? This is 2024. Let's point, click, and buy, and let's us do the shipping, and we will just, you will just be getting money from me all the time, and I'm really happy to do that. And then it can, we can be respectful and and you know I'm a Canadian before I'm a British Columbian. I love Canada and I'm proud of it and I, I really wish that they would put this aside and allow it just just come to the table, let's make this deal and let's put it behind us. Let's celebrate the fact that the wines are getting better, our communities are getting better. I don't you know I I want your uh, I, I want the Alberta residents to be able to get it at the same price the British Columbia residents have. And if you're a wine club member, yeah. you get a discount. So yeah. it's, it's yeah. even better. Yeah. No, it seems, I mean, there's, we can spend an hour on this and I probably will be in another episode. Sure. Um, but, you yeah. know, the thing is, is that, you know, in the 1800s when the BNA Act was developed and our, you know, our federalist system was set up and then we had our constitution in the 19, uh, you know, late 1900s. There wasn't digital. There wasn't a digital marketplace. Um, there wasn't the seamless uh, transport across borders for being to transact in this digital space um, to support products that we make within our own federation. So I hear you, and I'm not a tax policy person or expert, but you know, it seems to me that if it's a, about making sure that the appropriate and relevant taxes are remitted somehow, there must be a way, <laughs> there must be a way to devise this. I mean, I'm not that person in the think tank, but there must be. <laughs> it needn't be a complicated issue. No. It should be a no. simple one. And it should be a constructive one where we, we get together, 
we come to an agreement, shake hands and say, that wasn't hard. <laughs> you know, let's just do it. And just have, you know, uh, Manitoba did it, Saskatchewan, uh, Nova Scotia, like we're getting there. Well, you know, you mentioned prohibition and um, alcohol, beverages, and our polit- it's political. You know, there's been a lot of politicization yep. since, well, pre-prohibition. So um, as you mentioned, we're still living with uh, the legacy of that. And hopefully we will be able to loosen the fetters soon. So thank you for your initiatives in that. Um I appreciate your candor and being able to have a laugh during what I know are very, very hard times. So we might just go to another um, one of the other acute challenges facing uh, our producers now in British Columbia. I mean, 2024 has been off for many to a brutal start between yep. these letters coming from Alberta <laughs> and also um, the weather. So for people who aren't aware. Um, There were some days of exceedingly cold weather in January in the Okanagan Valley, Um, lengthy periods of time below minus 23, 24, 27 degrees, uh, similar to last year, uh, December of the year before, um, which also was devastating for the crops. And I know, I understand that, you know, until March, it won't be definitive as to um, the extent of damage because of this cold, but Unfortunately, right now, expectations are that there's probably been extensive damage. So brutal. Um, Are you able to share now with us a little bit about what you think it looks like in your neck of the woods? Um, I know there's a lot of regionality and diversity up and down our valley, but where you're sitting, what what expectations are? Yeah. uh, In 2022, in early December, it's like December 9th to 12th or something, we had that cold snap. And uh, for very fortunately, we weren't affected. And so 2023 crop was just fine. We didn't lose buds and, and it was just fine. That's not the case now. We did an, an extensive <clears throat> uh, investigation of, of ours and 1,600, uh, I think it was 1,600 buds were checked and most of the primary and secondaries were, were done. So, um, but that's not my biggest concern. My biggest concern, it, it, it's, that's, that's a, an impact on your production in 2024. And, but uh, being producing reds, we've got a lot of wine in our winery. We've got a, had a very large, very large vintage in 2022 and decent in 2023. So we're okay. We're going to keep going. We're not dependent on, you know, for a Chardonnay next year, it could affect it, but um, it's the real key now is determining whether or not we have plant death because yeah. you can have and so yeah. what we're doing now is i i was on a really good uh call several days ago with the university of washington and they're they're real leaders and mm-hmm. uh so we we were quite a bit cooler than it was down in washington state so, so there were a lot. Of, there were a lot of my peers from the Okanagan on the call, and they were yeah. Like saying, "Yeah, but we went to minus twenty-seven yeah. um, Celsius." Like it's it's uh, and and we we're trying to figure out how you can tell and if the um, is. So I did learn a lot more about what you want to be looking for, and if the xylem mm-hmm. is dead, yeah, the plant is dead. Yeah, if the phloem is dead, it, 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 it can recover. So there's, there's stuff. So my team right now are looking and they're, they're, it's, 
we won't know. You know, basically, we're at pruning time right now. Typically, we would be pruning. We're not pruning. One of the one of the main pieces of advice that they gave on this really important call was for you guys in British Columbia that had this really dramatic one. Um, you're better off not to prune. Like just prune. I, we're going to prune just at the at the very very top, just to clean things up a little bit. But we're going to give it until April, and we're going to see what pushes. And we want the plants to be alive. Um, you know, ironically, when we won a decanter wine of the year in 2020, coincidental to our winning that, France made it illegal to export the clones that we have. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it, used to be, it used to be that the clones were sold uh, in a, on a prioritized basis, that the first growths got first pick. Second growth got second pick, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and then the export market. So that's what they're trying to sell me the garbage before. Well, I got the best cones, and it's really important that my plants are alive because even if even if eighty percent of them are alive, I can you know we can use our own plants to graft and re recover our vineyards right so that's and, the goal and, right and replanting yours which is an interesting topic so so thank you for sharing that um maybe i'll check in with you later in may or april um yeah. taking you know from altitude from people who are listening uh you know that there's huge diversity in our valley in terms of what's planted and uh uh soils and conditions um and there'll be some people who aren't sitting on inventory or um you know, for pe- just so people have a sense, you know, for a lot of people, for listeners, if you can't produce, if vines have to be pulled up if they're dead, you know, people will yeah. be out of production for five years. And that's that's even aside from can you find, can right now, everyone might be looking for vines if you can't propagate mm-hmm. your own. And yeah. also, is that the time to consider whether you need, if you should think about changing what you're planting there? And so, there's so many decisions, which again, need to be made probably in a short amount of time for people. And also, again, very capital intensive where you, for some people, they won't have, <laughs> you know, yeah. anything coming in for a long time. So yeah. in light of that, what do you think consumers, and I'll get to wineries in a minute, but what do you think consumers can do to su- to support in the short and longer term now, um, knowing that for many, there could be very limited stock um or people yeah. are trying to no, figure out how to weather the storm yeah well you know the best sale for a small winery is a direct sale yeah go visit them yeah because then they're not paying the commission to so-and-so and they're not mm-hmm. you know it's just it's the little guys i yeah. am so intent on on supporting that community of people because we can't lose yeah. them yeah and, and these are there are a lot of people out there they live on their site they live they yeah. work it they you know i am incredibly passionate about our need to this is this is a uh, i'm hopeful that it's just a window that we're just gonna have to have to help the, the community through through this straight but at the same time one point that i've been making with industry a lot and my peers is we've got to take this opportunity right now to put together committees of advisors to know if we're going to replant what do we replant like, don't, we can't shotgun out and everybody to throw a dart. Let's, so I'm working a lot right now on calls with my peers, trying to put together that group. And, and I had a, had a really, really intense call yesterday with some scientists that want to be involved 
and they want to help us. Like there, there are certain things you can do to help your plants recover, which is a pretty, it's, it's not so much a thing we would be doing in the spring. It's something you do in the fall that will help set your plants up to be able to weather cold, cold events. So that's, that's really cool. But we need as a community to start having collective, uh, get get good advice and and a playbook for one another so when we do go to the premier and say we need help go there with a specific strategy and not just oh just write us a check i'm not in the write yet check requesting mode i'm in that our industry needs to be it needs a band-aid on it right now and we need to replant but we need to plant right so who do we hire to advise us on this? And and there are, you know, I just love the passion of our the passion of our community. You know, we got people like Chris Coletta. She's working so hard right now. She knows everybody, and and I'm on her case constantly. I said, let's get this committee yeah. together. Let's get. Well, and, yeah, you see, I mean, it seemed you know that's your uh, the point about planning. So there's the immediate need for help. Um, there, but this this could also be an opportunity for the industry itself to say, well, what is our 2030 plan or our 2040 plan as a, yes. as a group? Because, uh, you know, what if when you when we get assistance, what do you then do with that assistance for long ongoing long term sustainability? So uh, that would be with any sectors. Is it time is of chaos and our personal lives, chaos and transition? What are you going to do in that time when you're down <laughs> to yeah, sure. re- rebuild, no, you know, and what are you going to do absolutely. to build the foundation? So, um, you know, maybe that's getting into one of my next questions, which is, um, you know, looking ahead 10 years, what, what do we think this Valley, Okanagan Valley, for example, or the BC wine industry more broadly, but let, we'll talk about the Okanagan for the moment. Um, what could it, what could it look like? Or what should it look like from a wine destination or wine producing area point of view? You know, are there things structurally now that we should be considering as part of this um, building a plan or kind of renewing a plan? Or where do you think, you know, where could we go? And in the context of the practical realities of navigating Mother Nature and the place we live. Mm -hmm. That's, That's a really good question. What that's, what this will have done is it's going to have um you know we expanded when i think when i started there were 50 wineries and then there were like 150 and then there's two now there's 240 in the okanagan and 300 some odd in british columbia um i would venture to guess that there are going to be fewer wineries in the next few years and that's uh sometimes you know it's, it's a chart. I'm a chart guy. <laughs> and I think that we grew too fast and there's going to be, that's, that's a natural thing. But some of the properties that were planted probably shouldn't have been planted. I think what's going to happen is we're going to dial it down and know, okay, these are the specific greatest likelihood. Some of the others, maybe if you want to keep trying them, you want to plant Riesling or you want to plant something that's going to have a higher degree of likelihood of success or, or survival. Um, but I think it's going to refine us and get us to, to, to really dial in what we have planted. I think there's, um, there's a fair amount of opinion that Syrah has been really badly hurt. And, and that it may not, you know, 
our, our Syrah was not that badly hurt. I don't know about this year though. Um, it was severely hurt down, down in, in, uh, Oliver last year in, in the 2023 vintage. So, um, I think, uh, you know, I am the eternal optimist. I think we're just going to get better from this. I think that the, the world kind of know us now. And, and, you know, when I, Jancis Robinson did an article on Painted Rock and our relationship with the Land Sutra a few years ago. And when that article came out, um, a couple days later, I got a call from, uh, Eric Asimov, Isaac Asimov's son. He writes for the New York times. And he said, why haven't I heard of this Okanagan? Send me some wine. So I said, We're just north. We're just north of your border. I know. But you know what? This is the New York Times. But they know yeah. us now. And and it's, you know what? You just got to keep keep going. And and I think it's, uh, uh, I love the industry. Like it's 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 just been a, I, I couldn't have picked a better time to get in. And we've been spectacularly well supported by our province. I can't, if I leave this in, if I retire from this at one point, if there's any legacy thing, it's have grown the brand and I want, I want, and, and that whole thing of earning it, man, I, I, if, if I can get our wines into Ontario, then that would be my biggest, because then look at, look at how much it, how, how we grow our market. It'd be fantastic. Like it would just be a game changer if we could do that. And and reciprocity, it would be really good for the Ontario wine industry because I don't think a lot of British Columbians are buying it. Well, they can buy it directly. I don't think a lot are just because it wasn't reciprocated. So these are, these are conversations. I, in my international travels, I go, I've been going to Canada House now for, for many years now. And I've got to know most of the major players in Ontario. And I think the world of these guys, I love their wines. They're different than ours. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And I think you're, you know, in terms of outreach outside of our own province to other parts of Canada internationally, um, and this probably is for another discussion other time as well, but the broader picture about, um, you know, where, where's the Okanagan Valley? Well, come, come and look. And it's not just our wine. And I don't mean that with any disrespect to the wine that we can make here. It's about the whole experience and what we can offer and probably there's another conversation to be had as to what other kind of structural things we could put in plans to um, expand that offering and support the offering so that more people can come and stay and play and taste and eat um, and travel. So for me, I feel that's some of the huge potential that we have in this province around what you have done and what our wine um, growers and winemakers are making. And it's not tapped out yet. We have a lot we have a lot still. No, and it's just other, a matter of unleashing it and, and figuring out how Valley. we can best unleash it. You know? Yeah. Um, like, I, I love yeah. the other areas, like I was saying on Vancouver Island. Yeah. yeah. And they know, yeah. I, I really, I got to know a lot of those guys too. And, mm. and I really admire, um, you know, they, they planted what they should plant over there. Lots of Pinot Noir, lots yeah. of stuff. That, anyway, yeah. it's, 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 yeah. that's, it's fun. It's a, yeah. it's a nice, wonderful yeah. community. Um, I'd like to thank, I'm, I'd like to thank you in a moment, but before that, I'd, I, specifically thank you for mentioning the small wineries because I think many people out there may um, be of the view or assumption that uh, our winery business here, our industry is composed predominantly by large players. And you and I both know that the majority of wineries are small family businesses or tightly held businesses here whose livelihood does depend on um, their project 
And yes, you know, farming <laughs> and mother nature as can be fraught with risk, but um, you know, they, they do need support. And then they will also be looking at their plans about how they can weather the storm. So I'd like to thank you for, for mentioning that specifically. No, thank you. This, yeah. this opportunity because, <laughs> no, you know what, when I first got in the industry, it was, it was pretty funny because all of a sudden there's some, you know, I, I had a little bit of bad feedback from some people and they said, all oh, these guys with all this money are coming in. That wasn't the reason I got in the industry. It was, I, I was, I wanted to do something that was good for the industry, good for a province. I'm, I like to work hard and there are some people with way more money than me that are in the industry now. But that's not the fabric of our industry. The fabric of the industry are the husbands, the wives, their children that, you know, of that uh, 220 people in the Okanagan Valley, there's 20 that are, or 150 of them are them. And, and that's what we have to pay attention to because that is what makes it really interesting and makes it fun. You want to go on, on Naramata Road and, and stop at some of these small places and you're going to yeah. find some really cool well, I also, for me personally, I love the fact that we have the diversity of experiences and the different sizes of players. And so thank you for those comments. And also uh, for you, um, for all of the work and your passion and everything that you have invested um, uh, in, I guess, in literal terms, but in your own <laughs> passion and personal uh, time into this industry, because um, resources being applied to take the word outside and to support the entire industry. I mean, there is a metaphor about what uh, all tides raising all yeah. boats. I believe that I see it mm -hmm. and um, you know, team. And so, so thank you. Thank you for making the time today during what My I know is a very challenging, the very thank you for small all your contributions to the industry and your ongoing efforts to help people see this particularly cute time through <laughs> And, um, you know, I'd love the next time we get together, we can maybe do it and clink some of glasses, um, you know, maybe some painted rock or I'll bring some wine. <laughs> I'd love it. Honestly, there's a, I just want to say there's a very fine line between passion and desperation. <laughs> it always keeps you on your edge. It, yeah. That's, that's, that's a good thing. Variety um, and does. variety. It does. It does. It's, it's, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, Tanya. Thank you. Thank much. you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my discussion with John Skinner of Painted Rock Estate Winery. When John and I were discussing the trade barriers which we have within Canada when it comes to buying and selling our home-produced wine within our own country, we were just scratching the surface of this topic. As John mentioned, in our Canadian landscape, this seems to be a hangover from the Prohibition era. I'm frequently asked by my friends and consumers alike why we don't see much other Canadian wine on our shelves or at home, whereas we can readily buy wine from most almost anywhere else in the world. And so, I thought that I could make this a conversation a two-part series and invite my colleague Mark Hicken back on the show so that we can discuss the wine trade barriers which we have within Canada. You'll recall that Mark and I discussed the legacy of Prohibition in episode four of my podcast series. I'm intrigued by why we don't have free trade of our own goods within our own borders. So stay tuned, as that next episode discussion with Mark Hicken is coming your way soon. Until then... Take care and see you next time on the TT Wine Explorer podcast.